0: Welcome to the inaugural episode of Popcorn Politics, a podcast where two guys who've worked in politics discuss films, what those films are trying to say, and what they believe, whether they realise it or not. If that sounds like a good time, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm excited because today we're talking about one of my favourite films, 2015's The Big Short. My name is Dermot Burke. I'm here with Jack. Say hi, Jack. Hi, Dermot. Hey, how are you getting on? Yeah, no, I'm good. Um,
1: I just... Finished a long day of work uh, in politics today because uh, I am still working in, uh, as of recording anyway, I'm still working in, in politics, but by the time this episode is released, I will not be, I hope. That's the plan anyway. But yeah, no, last night I watched The Big Shorts and I enjoyed it. I watched it again
0: and I'm excited to talk about it. For anyone who hasn't seen this film, it stars Christian Bale, Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, and it follows the men who saw the 2008 housing crash coming ahead of time, and how they profited off the housing crash. Uh, it was nominated for several Oscars, including Best Picture and one Best Adapted Screenplay. To give us a really basic idea of what it's about, U.S. banking system is knee-deep in housing mortgage bonds because the mortgages are seen as low risk. Uh, we followed three different hedge funds who, in their own ways, discovered that the entire system is actually teetering on the brink of collapse, and that banks have been making huge risks based off of dodgy mortgage bonds. Everyone in this group looks to bet against, also known as short, these bonds with the expectation that the bonds will eventually fail, which will make them a lot of money. But as time goes on, they soon realize just how precarious and fraudulent the banking system truly is and who will have to pay the price. So I'm going to just go out straight away and say I love this movie. Uh, It's one of my favorite films. I think, first off, it just as a film. I think it's great, but also as a way of putting forward a political message. I think that its message is... Really, really smart. What do you think broadly about The Big Short?
1: I think the movie's fun. I like the movie. Um, I really enjoy it. Every time I see it, I think that's the fourth time I've seen it. It's a lot of fun. Adam McKay is a good director. Uh, He's quite funny. Everything he makes is really enjoyable. The movie itself, I think, does a pretty good job of explaining a lot of very complicated topics around finance and politics and whatever else. What I would say, though, is that it can kind of be summarised, like all the, the different political economic finance jargon that they're trying to get get across, I think that it can really realistically be summarised in that the housing crisis was caused for loads of reasons, but if you to pick one reason above any others, it's that wages fell, or wages were stagnant, let's say, while borrowing shot up through the roof, and too many banks were giving out far more loans than they should have. I think the movie does a pretty good job of explaining a lot of things, but it kind of, I think at times, goes into kind of overdrive uh, by trying to over explain certain things like there was one scene in a casino where they tried to explain cdo's versus i can't even remember what they called them what were they called do you remember no exactly you don't remember neither of us really remember they kind of tried that trick maybe one or two many times but overall the movie does a great great job of kind of explaining what happened uh, in the 2008
0: financial crash So we've got three groups. You've got Scion Capital, which is a hedge fund, which is headed up by Dr. Michael Burry, who's played by Christian Bale. And he's the guy who first realizes that these CDOs, as they're called, are actually quite dodgy. Then you've got Frontpoint Partners, which is a hedge fund led by Mike Baum, who's played by Steve Carell, who teams up with a guy named Jared Vennett, who is played by Ryan Gosling and is a Deutsche Bank trader who understands Burry's analysis and thinks it can make him a lot of money. And then thirdly, you've got uh, Brownfield Capital, which is... Charlie and Jamie, two young investors from Boulder, Colorado, they just stumble onto Venet's pitch, and they work with a retired trader named Ben Rickett, who's played by Brad Pitt, to kind of get in on the action. I actually really like their business model, which is people don't want bad things to happen, so they'll just underestimate the likelihood that it will happen. So here's what I feel like the film is mostly about. Uh, You and I had a quick chat about this before we started talking. I think... The film believes that we as people, we have an expectation that the people who are in charge, people who make the decisions that govern our lives, they're smart, they're diligent, but more than anything, they're adults. You know, that that could be bankers, it could be regulators, that could be politicians. We operate under the assumption that these are mature people who know what they're doing. Obviously, both you and I have worked in politics, so we've seen a bit of the other side. But I think just like Steve Carell's character, you know, I... get very cynical about the individuals, but there's a part of me that still holds on to the hope that the system will hinder the worst actors. But this film argues that's not the case. It argues basically that the seeds of the global financial crisis were planted by dumb jocks who didn't know what they were doing, or immoral creeps who just didn't care. And basically the people who are meant to hold them accountable just didn't do their jobs. There's a scene at the end of the movie where the two young guys from Brownfield Capital are walking through Lehman Brothers. At this stage, the building's been abandoned, pandemonium outside, everyone's lost their jobs, the bank has shut down, which is funny because at at the start of the film, we meet them and they're trying to get a meeting with Lehman Brothers and they can't even get past the lobby. They're wandering around this place and it's totally empty except for desks and chairs and a pyramid made out of red bull cans, which I thought was a very good touch. For me, actually, what made that such a good touch was the fact that it immediately reminds you of the immaturity of these people. One of the guys, Charlie, turns to his buddy and he says, this, this isn't how I pictured it. And the other guy, Jamie, asks, well, what did you think we'd find? And the first guy says, I don't know, grown-ups. That's been kind of rattling around in my head for the last couple of days, because I think whether it's in politics or it's in business or it's in finance or all these areas, you know, like I said, we think that it's the grownups who are in charge. But actually, when you dig beneath the surface, it's a lot of the dumb jocks.
1: I agree with your analysis there. I think I, think uh, I, I like following the two lads as they you know, journeyed through it. Um, they were two good characters. They were, they, were, they were good characters to follow. But I think that there's a Michelle Obama quote where she talked about how people are always intimidated by people in positions of power or leaders or political figures or whatever else. And she said that they're just people. Now, I'm probably paraphrasing that quote, I'm probably butchering it. But that's certainly true. We, we both met politicians. We both worked for them or worked with them some might say. And yet yeah, they're, they're just people, They, you'd you chat with them the same way you would pretty much anyone else after a while anyway. And you kind of see that a little bit here where people in these positions of power make a litany of mistakes, they they do things that they really shouldn't have and in a way, the motivations of pretty much everyone in the movie is even the people that we don't see, the characters that were are only kind of inferred or referred to, their motivations are quite understandable and quite personable but everyone seems to be expecting a higher authority than themselves to come in and maybe rescue them or rescue the system or rescue people who are innocent and nobody really in the movie i can't think of any character at least off the top of my head who really steps up to the plate and actually goes out of their way to do something socially conscious, do something socially responsible, or do something that shows any real leadership themselves. They never bother to do something above themselves. They're they, they they're always, all of the characters are quite selfish, I think.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that there's moments in the epilogue where you get the idea of, well, after this whole period, after they've made their money, then they try to do these things, then they try to make the change. But yeah, I'd agree with you with that. Mostly it seems motivated by selfishness. And not just selfishness in terms of trying to make money. I think it does a really good job of really communicating how so many of these people are motivated just by pure pettiness or spite or anger at the system. Or with, with Dr. Burry, it seems the case that, he, you know, Christian Bale's character, it seems the case that he's almost motivated by being right. And, well, I have the facts and the facts are this, so therefore this is the right thing, so it should happen, as opposed to what is the right thing morally. Maybe we should go through the different groups that we meet who are all in their own way responsible for what has happened. The obvious one to start with is those low-level to mid-level, what I would call dumb jocks. You know, it's the guys in Florida who aren't confessing, they're bragging. It's the guys in Las Vegas who just want to go to a shooting range and expense all the ammo to a client. These guys seem to be who we meet regularly. These are the guys who make us feel... Like, well, actually, the banking world is just made up of idiots who just are almost falling into their own money and don't really know what they're playing with. Do you think that was accurate? Do you think that was overstated? Even if we're not talking about in the banking world, then in the political world, which you and I maybe have waded in those waters a bit more often. I don't really
1: feel anything negative toward those characters. Maybe a sense of pity, I guess, more than anything else. A kind of a, a begrudging respect of them during the movie they're clearly doing something they enjoy they're not trying to be malicious about it they're not trying to hurt anyone they it's not that they don't know any better I, I think that they're not the bad guys of the movie I I, I don't know about what you think about that but um I, I don't think they're the bad guys I think they're just they're just it's just unfortunate that those were the people in those situations in
0: those circumstances I don't know what you thought about that I disagree slightly in that when we meet the guys in Florida, they're they're talking about, oh, these are the people we target. And they're quite open about the fact that they are going after certain people. But I agree, they are not the actual villains. And what I think the film does a really good job of is making us aware that just because there are all these people who are slightly oblivious, act almost as the face of this, it doesn't actually mean that the people at the very top are witless. They know exactly what they're doing. And it's the faceless characters who we very rarely meet in this film who actually hold the power, who lobby Congress, who know that they're going to get a bailout, who know that they're going to be okay, who know that they're going to get the golden parachutes. They are the actual, the villains. And it seems like neither the audience nor the characters realise this until the very end. Throughout the film, we're given the impression that, well, there's these, these knuckleheads who are actually running everything. And at some point... They are going to be found out and they're going to be punished. But the truth is actually that the knuckleheads aren't the guys who really succeed. And actually, that's a lot like politics. There are a lot of knuckleheads in politics. The people who make it to the top, people who actually make decisions, get into power, very rarely the knuckleheads. They're usually the guys with, and I say guys because that's unfortunately how politics tends to be, they're usually the people with the nous and the cunning to move up the ranks and get what they want.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I mean the, the, the two guys talking about the people they're targeting, yeah, that's not grace, that is a bit taking advantage of, you know, people who are beneath them, I guess, or who they they would consider to be beneath them, fair enough. But yeah, the the, the kind of sad part about all of this for me is that you've got loads of people who are really, really intelligent. Like Christian Bale's character. He's a medical doctor, he becomes a hedge fund manager, there's a lot of other people who are clearly brilliant clearly incredibly intelligent in this movie they're the managers of these hedge funds or they're the two young lads who are really clever at seeing things the way other people aren't seeing them the way that the whole industry they work in isn't seeing them and really using that to to grow themselves exponentially but they're working in finance you know they're working in this industry they're not creating anything they're not doing any good they're not building anything they're not leading people they're not you know they're not being good in society. Like, the sad part for me about this movie is that you've got people who could genuinely contribute something to society. They could actually build something for other people and they don't. They profit off the suffering of huge numbers of their fellow men and women in the world. And that doesn't end at the end of this movie. In spite of the fact that a small number of people, a small number of brilliant people are encouraged to behave this way. And it, winds up screwing a generation of people over if not more that doesn't end at the end of this like it keeps going it keeps perpetuating we find that out later on in the film by the way spoiler warning we should have said spoiler warning at the beginning of this thing um and if you didn't live through 2008 sorry it was 12 13 years ago now at this stage you should know about some of these things but yeah that, that, that's kind of the, the really sad part for me is just the wasted potential Of so many of these people and what they feel like they're forced to do, or what they not what they feel like they're forced to do, what they feel is the pinnacle of achievement for them is joining a hedge fund
0: and managing somebody else's money to make a commission for themselves. There's a line from Mark Baum at the end of the film. He's talking about the again, these powers that be that we talk about. And he says they knew the taxpayers would bail them out. They weren't stupid, they just didn't care. And you're right, there is. Even even with our quote unquote heroes, they're incredibly smart. They they don't use his power for, as you would say, for good. Even Mark Baum, who hates the finance industry, he'd love to tear it all down. He's still managing a hedge fund. He's still working within the system. He's still doing things for this industry that he clearly not only despises, he hates to the very core of his being. And I think what's very tragic about this movie and it wasn't intentional because this film came out in 2015 but this film telegraphs the politics of the latter half of the decade so well there's a line from actually it's, it's dr burry it's his line to his investors at the end of the film it says people want an authority to run their lives but they don't choose this authority based on facts or results they choose it because it seems authoritative and familiar and I think that that is a very telling comment. You know, you think of, look, let's be honest, Donald Trump is is in many ways is the outcome of the 20, 2008 financial crash and that populist wave. And, you know, what was two things you could say about Donald Trump? Well, he felt very authoritative. Like he said he was going to do the things and he wasn't pussyfooting around it. And he was very familiar to people. Everyone knew who Donald Trump was. So that that... Which is apparently is a, is a, that quote, which is apparently a real quote from his letter, is incredibly uh, prophetic in many ways, which I thought was really interesting. And I think that you know at the end of the film, when you're seeing those Florida jocks, as we were calling them, when you see them, they're at a they're at a fair, and one of the things they go to is about foreclosures and making money off foreclosures. The, the guy who had paid his ta- or paid his rent and his landlords went bust because he put the house in the name of his dog and so that guy ends up in his car I think so many of these things this telegraphed where the second that that real anger that didn't really bubble over until 2016 I think a lot of that stuff at the end of the film you really get that that sense of it I think when you look back at 2016, and you have this candidate in Hillary Clinton who is so tied to the bank, specifically Goldman Sachs, regularly brought up about her. It, things fall into place and it makes sense. And it's just amazing that you would think this film would have come out in 2018, the way in which it really captures that anger and that rage, particularly at the last part of the film. Yeah,
1: I think prophetic is the word. Um, it's, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. I mean, the movie was made before the Donald Trump presidency, it predicted it really, really well, I think, without intending to. What was it that Baum also said? You know, people aren't going to blame the banks, the ones who they saw caused the problem. They're going to blame the same people that they've been blaming forever, the poor and immigrants, which wound up happening. I think we can we can see that. Yeah, the movie, the movie is uh, it's, its prophetic in that it, it, it kind of anticipates or at least talks about some of the underlying motivations behind the Donald Trump presidency, I guess, or at the very least, not necessarily the Donald Trump presidency, the backlash against the idea of a Hillary Clinton presidency. But at the same time, I don't think it criticizes enough the people who caused the 2008 financial crash in the first place. Like we don't really know from the movie. We don't really know who did it. The the actors involved at the highest levels, they're kind of alluded to, but they're not really a part of the movie. They're not really a part of the fabric of the film. They're kind of Mentioned like a name or two is mentioned here and there. We might see like a photo of one or two or, or whatever else, but they're never actually present in the movie. We get the the low level grunts, the low level foot soldiers who are um selling the loans that they shouldn't. We have mid managers who are creating CDOs of CDOs or whatever else, uh, but we never actually see the people who are in the George W. Bush White House or speaking the ears of the president, or speaking the ears of the people in power?
0: Yeah, I mean, we get a couple, you know, we get Ben Bernanke mentioned a lot. We get when Mark Baum confronts that guy at the Las Vegas event. We do get a couple of people, you're right, for the most part, these figures are kind of kept in shadows. It's almost as if the banks themselves, the institution, are what has caused it, rather than individual failure which I almost feel is kind of the point of the film. The film doesn't seem to say the problem is these individual actors. It is the institutions. And in fact, who the actual people were doesn't really matter. What matters is is that there's institutional failure both within these massive banks, but also in the people who are meant to keep an eye on them and meant to actually make sure they did what they're meant to do. At the end of the day, who those people were doesn't matter because they never got punished anyway so what matters is the lesson we learn which is we cannot allow the banks to ever get into the stage again which they already are as the film itself points out
1: yeah no you're completely right the 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 people who are the villain the closest thing to the villains in this movie is the institutions themselves the systems of finance in in, in 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 the United States and in the world as well, because uh, it clearly like they they incorporate Deutsche Bank into it, so it's clearly not just American finance. At the end of the movie, they talk about how it's hitting Europe. You know, Greece and Spain are going under. Obviously, it hit Ireland as well. Later on, we're go- we're gonna have to talk about how this whole thing hit Ireland and the Irish consequences of all of this. The systems are the focus of the the negative feeling in the movie, and I think that. That's fair that that's that's absolutely fair, but we don't actually ever really go inside or have any sort of an understanding of these systems. It's clearly not not a good enough understanding, I don't think it's clearly that all of the people that we're following are outsiders or almost outsiders to the systems. They're looking on as much as we are on the
0: subject of institutions. let's talk a little bit about everything around the bank because this wasn't just a failure of banking. As I mentioned before, it was a failure of the people who were meant to keep the banks in check. I think there's three really good examples of that. The first one I want to touch on, because I felt it's kind of the the most straightforward, is the media. So Brownfield, are two beautiful boys, they head to the Wall Street Journal, they talk to a reporter, they're going to blow this whole thing wide open. They have seen the error of their ways, and they want everyone to know, the press needs to be printing this front page. And they get told straight up by um, the guy played by Andrew Reynolds, no, I'm not going to stake my career on this. He says, it took me years to build my relationships on Wall Street. No bank or ratings agency is going to confirm a story like this. Which, you know, makes sense. He points out that he's got a three-year-old and a wife doing a master's degree. You know, he's got his own stuff going on. Much like the dumb jocks, as we've called them, he can't see beyond himself. He can't see beyond his career. And so we end up in a situation when you have an institution full of individuals who won't stake their career or won't take the action that needs to be done. You have an institutional problem. Obviously, he's representative of the entirety of the media because it's not like, oh, we went to this one guy and it didn't work out. So we just stopped. Like, obviously, that wouldn't happen. He's meant to represent a wider attitude. And I think we see this in, look, I think we see this in politics. I think where journalists are often accused of not really wanting to shake the boat, certain politicians, particularly certain powerful politicians, because they won't get access again. They won't get quotes again, either on or off the record. You Journalists, they don't want to stake their reputations on what turns out to be the most important story in the world. The one you absolutely should stake your reputation on, but you don't know that at the time. Did you have any thoughts about how journalists were shown for that very brief window? Yeah, no, I I completely agree with what you've said
1: there. I think that you know, even in my own life and my own career, I've seen people do the same thing. People who work in the public sphere, they're a little, at least a little bit unsure sometimes of coming out publicly in favor or against something in particular. It, it depends on the situation and everything like that. I think we can see it. From that journalist's perspective, you know, he has a three-year-old daughter, he has a he has a wife doing her master's, and he feels in his own life he can't rock the boat. He feels that he has his own problems going on. And it, to be honest with you, it's kind of hard to argue against that. If his family life is reliant upon his job, whatever that might be, in a way it is irresponsible of him to go out on a limb and potentially jeopardise his family's income. I think that there is an argument to be made there. Having said that, I don't think there should be situations whereby people are forced into that, which is the problem that this movie kind of portrays. Now, the journalist himself, he was obviously, he's hated by by the two big boys, or they're big boys by that stage. But I think he, he comes across as a pretty normal person. I mean, we, we I'm sure we've both met people like him who, who have that. I think his reasoning for not going ahead with the story or going forward with the story, I think that is fair. he He's got to worry about his family. But... At the same time, he is a journalist. It is his job to bring this out to the public. And the fact that that's what's at stake, you know, that that is the thing that's stopping all of this going to the public. It's as if the banks, it's it's a less dramatic version of them having a gun to that journalist's head. They are forcing him through one means or another into doing their
0: bidding and supporting him without directly doing it. Yeah, I should be clear. I I don't, maybe I'm coming across like I'm criticizing him. Like, I agree. It's totally understandable. That's what makes it so devastating in a way, in that when you have all these people with totally understandable reasons and essentially have their careers in the vice grip of these banks, then the institution of journalism is fundamentally in a bad place. And that's how these stories don't get out. So obviously we're talking about those who are meant to be keeping an eye on them. The actual regulators themselves, so the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, Uh, We meet a woman who works for the SEC. She explains that her budget has been cut so much that she can't even properly investigate the banks. And in fact, when we meet her, she's in Vegas to try to find a big job in a bank because it's actually legal to work for a bank straight after working for a bank regulator. So again, that's a political problem. First off, slashing of the budget. That's obviously a political problem. But secondly, the regulator isn't regulated properly, which obviously sounds ridiculous. But if she's able to go off and which obviously sounds ridiculous, but she's able to go off and work for a bank after deciding what the bank's allowed to do. That's not good, folks. Yeah, so
1: I, I really enjoyed that, that part of the movie. I thought that was a bit of fun. It's also one of the, only, one of the very few female characters in the movie, which is a totally... I don't think we've, we have time to touch on the fact that there are no women really in the movie at all. But Karen Gillan's character, she's a lot of fun. And I have met people like that. I think you have met people like that as well. They're always good crack. They're always great fun. Crack, by the way, for our listeners outside of Ireland, if we ever have any listeners outside of Ireland, crack is just an Irish expression, which means fun or a good time. But people like that exist. They exist pretty much everywhere, certainly in politics or or I imagine finance. They're, They're good fun to hang around. But at the same time, that's highly unethical, even on a personal level. There's no personal responsibility there on her part. She is doing what she needs to do or what she feels she has to do to get ahead. And she's enjoying doing it. Good for her on one level but on the other hand it's kind of like what you touched on there the regulators aren't regulating in fact I'd go one further I think it's it's Orwellian you know the regulator is there the regulator is there to regulate that's what it is described as that's what its function is described as but it's not it is clearly there as a function of empowering the banks to continue doing what they're doing and as the banks continue on with unethical behavior like this that they clearly enjoy doing and people complain about it or people raise questions the banks can just say or the politicians can just say look our regulator is right there the regulator says it's fine and the regulator is just empowering it to do more it would be
0: considered orwellian if it didn't happen in las vegas yeah and i think the ultimate example of that and the third type regulator we want to talk about is all throughout the film we keep hearing, well, this is rated AAA, which is the highest rating that a bond can have. This is a AAA bond, even if it's made up of some Cs and some double Bs and whether it's AAA rated. And then we actually meet the rating agency. Standards and Poor's, the woman who you pointed out uh, beforehand, she's wearing glasses to show how she can't see anything. And she explains that, well, if we don't give the banks whatever rating they want, they'll just go down to Moody's down the street. And Moody's will give them whatever rating they want. And it's pointed out that this has been like this ever since They went public, as in they became a publicly traded company. And so it's the ultimate example of the regulators aren't regulating. They're essentially selling ratings. And it's shocking because it's the ultimate nail in the coffin to any idea that this is just, that there's any justice going on here, or that there's anyone keeping an eye on things. Because if we can't trust the idea that these are AAA rated or AA rated, there's nothing really we can trust yeah no i i loved how on the nose that imagery was
1: in that scene where they're in the in the in, in the regulator i think it's just it's hilarious and I, what i what i do like as well is each of the three hedge funds they each try a separate avenue or i think i think it's each of the three head hedge funds isn't it no no the two the two boys try the sec and the, the journalist and it's the baum guy who goes to the yeah 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 the financial regulator but, but when they go there she she's blind and she's She's blinded herself. She chooses to be blind. But when they start criticising her and her job, as soon as they bring bring up criticisms of her, she takes the glasses off. She can see absolutely fine. She looks the two lads dead in the eye and she starts criticising them. She starts calling them hypocrites. How much money are they going to win? How much money are they going to make as soon as she does declare these bonds as subpar or subprime or whatever they're called? I think that, well, first of all, it shows that there is at least some sort of self-awareness in the movie, that Adam McKay knows that these lads, they're not, they're not good people. What they're doing is wrong. But secondly, it shows that this ecosystem, this financial, political, property ecosystem exists and is self-sustaining and will protect itself and will protect other elements of the system whenever it can or whenever it even perceives a threat.
0: It will go right back and really go for the jugular as well. At the end of the film, Baum's right-hand man says to him, it'll be fine. They'll go to jail. They'll be punished. Bound goes, I don't think so. Because the scales have almost lifted from his eyes and he realizes that there is no consequences for these guys. Because for there to be consequences for the bankers, there needs to be consequences for everyone else. And when everyone else, including the politicians, are in on this, there's no way that these guys will go down. And I think that's quite chilling. And I think, again, looking at how this film is almost a divinatory in the way it looks forward. The way in which we're looking at the Trump administration now and how people are getting pardons, we're questioning will Trump ever get done for the blatant crimes he's committed, breaking the Emoluments Clause, the firing of James Comey, and being explicit that it was a political act. It's again, it's this history is repeating itself of these powerful people not being held accountable by any of the functions that are meant to hold them accountable. And also a system of accountability that's not fit for purpose. And much like we saw it in the banking system in 2008, once again, we're maybe seeing it in the American political system in the Trump years, as they may end up being called. This movie talks about something that really has
1: dominated my life. Uh, I think it has for you as well. The, The housing market, the housing collapse in 2008. I was... 17 when it happened, I think. Um, I remember hearing about the collapse of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac when I was... It was on the radio. I was in the car with my family. We were driving to our cousin's house. Obviously, I had no idea what the hell was going on, but it seemed like a big deal to the person on the radio. Over the next year or so, I kind of got a bit of an idea about the ramifications it would have in my life. And over the next kind of half a decade, I saw... A lot of people I know leave, including those cousins I was visiting. They both emigrated, one to the UK, the other to Australia. What is being talked about in this movie, it's dominated the last 10 or more years of, of global history. It really, really has. It's, it's led to, indirectly, to the, the election of Donald Trump. Uh, it certainly dominated the Obama presidency. Back here in Ireland, it dominated the 2007 to 2011 Fianna Fáil-Green coalition. The subsequent... Fine Gael Labour Coalition was obviously dominated by the recovery of the financial crash. Now, the one that happened in the United States, the specific financial crash, it, it, it had ramifications all over the world. Here in Ireland, we had our own crash that happened in conjunction with the global financial crash as well. It hit us pretty hard, the events of this movie. Obviously not as hard as other parts of the world, but it really has dominated the lives of people my age here in Ireland. It really, really has. Now, here in Ireland the, the global financial crash was going to hit us anyway because we were a small economy that was quite open to trade. So uh, a shock to the international trading system, a shock to the international system of doing business was going to impact Ireland negatively in a big way. I have right here in front of me uh, a, a graph showing the average income in Ireland over the last number of decades. It starts off in 1987 and it's, uh, it's, it's just not very high It doesn't have the exact figures here, unfortunately, but basically, by 2005, the average income of an Irish household was three times what it was in 1987, which is a huge growth. Those were the years of the Celtic Tiger. We had a massive economic boom. This country went from being the poorest country in Western Europe to one of the wealthiest. But then after 2005, things kind of level off. Now, naturally, that's going to happen. After we had such a massive growth, something like that is going to have to come to an end. All good things do. But here in Ireland, the pendulum really swung the other way uh, around the time I was leaving school. Now, when I was leaving school, when I was in my final year of uh, of secondary school, when I was when I was eighteen, one of my teachers, I remember this quite vividly. He he said that listen, lads, you, you're going to have a couple of options. You can ride out the recession in school and education, or you can go abroad. Those are the only two options you'll really have. That that's been the the general kind of way I, Ireland has dealt with most of the problems it's had to deal with since independence, or actually since before independence. And that's exactly what happened in the last recession. So in the aftermath of the events of this movie, I went and did my undergraduate degree. I got a master's afterward. A lot of my friends did something similar. They stayed in education, or they left. Family did the same thing as well. Now, in the last few years, up until coronavirus. We had started to recover, and people had started to move back or trickle back in their dribs and their drabs. Coronavirus and the, the recession that we're dealing with now is interesting, because in a way, the way that we've dealt with the aftermath of the 2008 financial crash was very similar to the way that we've dealt with pretty much every financial crash previous. You know, you, There's austerity to at least one degree or another. Irish people just leave the country, they flee in their droves, they go somewhere else with a decent standard of living, as well they should, as well they should. Coronavirus though, we can't really do that. Now the interesting thing as well though, because so many people can't leave Ireland for the first time, I've actually seen a couple of positives to how we've been dealing with this new financial crash. We've kind of learned our lessons a little bit from the financial crash 10-12 years ago. Uh, we're not, We're not really doing austerity in order to fix it you know Keynesian economics spending our way out of the recession last time round, probably would have helped to at least at least it would have helped more than what we wound up doing maybe we couldn't have done it at the time it wasn't necessarily a decision ireland could have made by itself but doing it might have helped and a lot of people that i've seen that i've spoken to in the new modern irish government or the 33rd doll kind of admitted that in one way or another
0: yeah, and I think as well as it being an Irish issue, you know, for people to know, austerity generally just means, from an economic point of view, that you're cutting the amount you're spending. And it, austerity was implemented across Europe during this time. They mentioned that around this time, especially in Spain and Italy and Greece and Ireland, the European Central Bank, the Commission, and the IMF were pushing on governments to make these big cuts. That you know, we need to get our we're spending down and that will reduce national debt now the european union are going in a very different direction they're going with what they call the european green deal it's been passed through the parliament now was proposed by the commission basically the idea that as much as possible europe is going to try to spend its way out of this crisis and it's going to spend on a way that tackles climate chaos which i think is a very good thing It's interesting at the end of this film, it notes that Dr. Burry's next project is he is investing entirely in water as the next scarce resource. So obviously dealing with the impacts of climate change is incredibly important. And again, you could argue that is this the extent it should be? But I think it's evidence that Europe, not just Ireland, not just individual countries, but Europe as a whole, is looking at this from the point of view of how do we, A, stop this recession from being too destructive on people's lives, but B, how do we stop the next crisis from happening? I agree with you. I think that I'm happier
1: with the Irish and the European response to a lot of the economic elements of COVID than I was happy with the economic response to the events of this movie, the, the, the 2008 housing crisis. But at the same time, I can't afford to buy a house, which is a pretty big problem. Now, you you mentioned there that Dr. Burry is investing in water. That is his new scheme, I guess you'd call it. But actually, I did a little bit of research in this last night, and he's back to investing in housing again. He's back to betting and shorting the the modern U.S. housing market because that's about to collapse as well. There's There's a couple of big problems in the U.S. housing market. One of them being that they have more empty houses than they do of homeless people. Now, I'm not sure the exact statistics on that. I don't know if it's kind of, you know, like we have here, ghost estates. You know, these might be half-finished houses or, or something to that effect. They also have ma- a massively overvalued housing market where you have a lot of older people in the United States who've invested almost their entire life's income into their home with the intent of selling it off in retirement and... Downsizing and living off the profit, I guess you'd say. But the problem with that, and with, with basing a huge amount of your economy around that, is eventually you will run out of people to sell to. Now, while you might get monopolistic people coming in who can buy up loads and loads and loads of these houses, there will come a point when people won't be able to avail of the the actual housing.
0: Yeah, and we saw this in the film, actually, when they go around to the ghost estate in Florida. And the point is made, there's about what's it, 30 houses and there's about four people living in them. And the point is made is, well, at some point you run out of people to buy houses or these people who can afford to buy these houses. So you're right. It is building a bubble up again. And is again, coming back to the film, it's a great point made by one of Michael Berry's investors where he says... The thing about the bubble is people don't know they're in a bubble, which is true. And I think that we remember in 2008 being like, what do you mean? And again, like you, I was about 15. I remember being like, what do you mean? Then this has crashed. Like, Surely they would have known they were in a bubble. But of course, you don't realize you're in a bubble. You just see the line going up and go, oh, great. Profits are increasing. Margins are increasing. Lessons aren't being learned. One thing that I find is interesting, though is that it seems to be similar mistakes are being
1: learned in the United States. We're actually running into kind of the opposite problem over here in Ireland. So I'm not too sure how in-depth I should go into this, but I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to go as in-depth as I can on Irish, the history of Irish housing policy that I'm not in no way an expert in, and nobody should ever listen to me about anything ever. I want to be very clear about that. But we have had a much worse housing crisis in Irish history before. So in the first half of the twentieth century, Ireland, especially Dublin, actually had, Dublin City in particular, had the worst slums in Europe. We 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 had proper slums. All these old grand Georgian houses built for the British gentry three hundred years ago, turn of the twentieth century, they were awful, they were decrepit, hundreds of well, a hundred people, let's say, living in one building. It just 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 awful, awful living situation. And then after independence there was a big push by the independent Irish government to move people out of these slums and give them actual affordable housing now in the last year or two there's been a real big push here in Ireland to have a referendum we there is a growing number of people here in Ireland who want to change the Irish constitution and add in a clause saying that Irish citizens have the right to housing. that isn't really in the Irish Constitution in so many words. when the Irish Constitution was first written in nineteen thirty seven housing was actually cheaper than food at the time, which is a crazy statistic. It's also not true because the housing that we have now is obviously of a much different standard to the housing that they had back in the interwar years in Ireland. But the point still stands in that housing as a basic necessity, as a fundamental right of all citizens, wasn't given the same kind of constitutional clout that a lot of people in Ireland wanted to have today. But interestingly, though, even though Ireland, we've gone through decades and decades of economic growth, you know, around the time I was born, and I was born in the beginning of the 1990s, Ireland was a borderline third world nation. Today, we have the highest standard of living, or one of the highest standards of living anywhere in the world. In spite of that huge difference of, you know, 1930s Ireland, no economic, no, no economy whatsoever to today, back in the 1930s, we were actually solving a much worse housing crisis, a much worse housing crisis and doing it sustainably. And over the next few decades, we were building social houses all around our cities and our towns right the way throughout the country. Uh, most of them are still standing. And then in kind of the Celtic Tiger years, when we had this economic boom, there was an attempt to to sort of fix this, where it would be a market-led approach. So we were dealing with a very similar sort of rampant market-led housing bubble that the United States was having. We had our own separate one. And so the government at the time decided that since there's so many houses being built the length and breadth of the country privately, let's just have the market do it. Let's just, whenever a development is built, 10% of that development, 10% of this new estate has to be sold to the Irish government to be used as social housing. And that was kind of... The new social housing here in Ireland. And that, that is a good idea, that's an admirable idea. It stops the kind of segregation that you might have seen in Ireland beforehand, where you had whole communities of people living in social housing without a huge amount of interaction with their neighbours or, or and vice versa. So there was a really good strong element of uh, social justice involved with that decision. The problem with it was it will always or almost always benefit developers to have more demand than supply of housing because that way it kind of maximizes their profits. So in Ireland, long story short, I kind of condensed about 100 years of Irish history there, we have found ourselves in a situation 10 years after the financial crash of 08, where we have the reverse problem.
0: And it is a problem. We ta- at the end of the film it talks about immigration, how immigration and immigrants and poor people were blamed what happened in ireland we had a different situation where actually a lot of the conversation was around austerity and now around housing and what has been noticed that as of yet ireland has not had a far-right wave there has been no far-right entryism into our politics at least not on an organized scale I, i always wonder if that is partially because in ireland there was always the assumption that well you can leave like if things aren't going right you don't get mad about the country. You just go. You just leave. And maybe we don't have the same expectations for our country that others have.
1: So I, I think you've raised an excellent point there. We've like it's 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 been noted that Ireland doesn't have this far right push that most of the other English speaking world, a lot of Europe has seen. But it is becoming stronger, especially during COVID. And maybe it's because we don't have this safety valve of emigration that we used to. Uh, I do worry about that myself. I I, I do worry about that. What I will say though is this movie depicts one of the most important events in world history in either of our lifetimes, and there are other movies that do it that we're going to have to cover on this podcast at some point. I think that, I think that I have certainly seen people in positions of power and people who are in positions of influence actually learn from their mistakes, and they are people. And I think that people like myself and yourself are recognizing that these are just people. They 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 are just human beings who are motivated by more or less the same things that are going to motivate anyone else. The issue is the systems that are there and they all need scrutiny. We need to scrutinize them. We need to make sure that we read into what's going on as much as we can and
0: we hold everyone who is in a position of power over us to account. I know you were saying that maybe they made these figures a little too sympathetic, but I think that's actually important. I think it's it's really important that the viewer gets the idea that these aren't just ideas these aren't just concepts these are real people with real lives and real problems i think the thing that i took from this film that i always need to keep reminding myself is that it's not enough just to keep an eye on the obvious villains the obvious malfeasance a lot of the problems that we have and i know this is a very boring point very almost technocratic is that we have a lack of oversight we don't have the structures in place to make sure that the structures are put in place, if that makes sense. So I think this film does a really good job of illustrating not just the failure of the banking system, as I talked about. It's the failure of the overseers. It's the failure of the media. It's the failure of the regulators. You know, One of the problems that happened during the crash in Ireland was the financial regulator was not doing its job in many people's eyes. And I think that what, as a viewer, you should take away along with every other thing that we know you need to take away from this film is that you need to watch the watchmen as it were that it's not enough to trust that these bodies are going to keep people in check you've got to keep the bodies in check and obviously we all know we have a duty to keep our politicians in check we don't always do it but we understand it's important to challenge our politicians challenge our political leaders but it's also important to challenge. The technocrats and the laws and the bodies that are meant to take care of us in honestly very convoluted ways. And the film points out a lot of the jargon is intentionally confusing. But we have a duty, as the polity, as the the people, whatever that may mean, to hold these institutions to account. And with that, I'd like to say thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you like this podcast, and please be sure to give us a follow. We'd really appreciate it. Look, we know it's the very first episode. Things maybe are a little jumpy, not as good as they could be. But if you enjoyed it, please rate, subscribe, review, all that good stuff, particularly on iTunes. It really, really helps out. Podcasts are starting off. Jack, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to say to the listeners? I just want to reiterate what Dermot Dermot said. This is our first podcast. Please be easy on us.
1: Please like, subscribe, whatever else. Dearman needs podcasting lessons, and uh, that's really important for 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 our future. We really appreciate anyone who who, who listened right the way through, especially. But uh, thank you for your time. We really hope that we've given a bit of insight from our own perspectives, where we've we've kind of seen inside some of these rooms, uh, at least to some extent. And we really do hope that we can kind of bring you inside as well, uh, as as much as that is reasonably possible and also i think this is a good podcast to start on or a good movie to start a podcast on because it, it, it it's a topic that has had such a big impact on certainly my life i know dear mid yourself as well it was so formative it was something that we didn't know what was going on when we when we experienced it but uh it's, it is good to look back with uh with a more critical eye